I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You don't think that it's time that somebody cared enough to have a dream? Why are you getting so upset? This is not about you. Yes, it is. You are a human affront to all women, and I am a woman. At some point, you gotta decide for yourself who you are. Can't let nobody make that decision for you. How do you go about getting an exorcism? I beg your pardon? Hi, this is Mark Kermode. Thanks for downloading this Kermode on Film podcast. This week's podcast comes to you from the stages of the Latitude Festival, where I did an onstage Q&A with Ben Wheatley, director of Kill List, Sightseers, High Rise, and most recently, The Brilliant in the Earth. I talked to Ben about his career, looking back over the films I love, and looking forward to the forthcoming Meg 2 with Jason Statham. So, sit back and take a front row seat at the Latitude Festival. Hello, how are you all? Uh, thanks ever so much for coming. Uh, it's great to see you all. It's brilliant to be here at Latitude. We've got a very special guest for you. The last time, he's one of my favourite filmmakers, the last time he was here, I think was the best part of a decade ago, when he came here to show A Field in England, which was a, a movie which fitted in rather brilliantly with the festival spirit. His most recent film is In the Earth. He's also the director of things like Sightseers and High Rise. Please welcome the great Ben Wheatley. Thank you. Oh, look at that. I know, it's, it's a whole bunch of people, Ben. It's really weird. Um, do you want to just get this quite near to you, but obviously COVID distanced? Okay, how's that's that? The, yeah, that's, that's fine. Right. Can okay. you all hear Ben? Cool. Ben, so the last time you were here was for uh, Field in England. What do you remember about coming here to show Field in England? I met Alan Moore, which was wicked. And, um, and, he, and he gave me a cuddle and I got a photograph of him. Um, and then, yeah, we showed the film and then this uh, couple kind of grabbed me as I walked out and uh, the, the, the boyfriend had these massive saucer eyes and the, um, and the girlfriend went, he's just dropped acid and watched your film. And I was like, I'm really, really fucking sorry about that. Um, I'll tell you what, I'm going to change the order of this already. <laughs> Shall we start by playing the tent walk from Field in England, which that person had just seen whilst under the influence of hallucinogenic chemicals? Why not? I remember having nightmares about that scene for ages afterwards. What do you remember about filming it? Because what, essentially, he's coming out of the tent where something dark, demonic, and unknown has happened. And as he comes out, he's kind of been turned into like a, like a divining rod. Yeah, I mean, there wasn't much, much description in, uh, about what he was going to look like when he came out. And it was kind of down to Rhys Shearsmith, really. And so the looks on everybody's faces are 
real shock. <laughs> and I think that's the first take as well. That was it, you know, so um, as he came out. And, it, and it, we all kind of watched it kind of amazed and figured it, I don't know, I, I could see all sorts of stuff. Like I saw lots of like Lon Chaney in it and things like that. And, but it's, that's the thing about Reese is like he's kind of, his understanding and depth, the depth of his understanding about horror is so deep, you know, that he's kind of, I always, I feel like I'm playing catch up a lot of the time when I work with him. Now, since you were last here, so you've got a new film out now in which Reese Shearsmith is back once again. I'm going to show the trailer. How many of you have seen In the Earth, which is just fantastic? So In the Earth is now playing in cinemas. If you get a chance, do go and see it because it's something that needs to be seen in a cinema. We'll play the trailer, but do you want to just say something about where in the... Because the whole film was done throughout lockdown, right? Yeah, it was shot in, I think it was July of last year. So it's kind of... I can't, and when I say that out loud, I'm not even sure what last year was. Whether that was that right, I don't know. Yeah, but, but yeah, it was conceived uh, in, within. I started writing it like the first week of lockdown as a, as a kind of a, an attempt to um, stop myself going mad, basically. And, um, and then we made it just as, the, uh, as, as we came out of the first kind of curve. So, yeah. And the, the story of it takes place in a world that is beset by the end of a pandemic or they're in the middle of a pandemic? Well, it was, it was odd, yeah, because I was writing stuff, like there's stuff in it where they've got kind of um, tests for the pandemic, for, for, for COVID, and we were kind of going, God, is this even going to be possible, you know? And I think, it's, I think they talk about the third wave at that point, but this was like speculative science fiction when we were writing it. Okay. I don't know. I mean, I felt like in March that we were never going to come out of it, but it, you know, so it was, it was kind of optimistic, yeah, yeah what, what I was writing. This is the first film that I saw back in a cinema after lockdown. So this is the very first thing that I saw. I thought it, I, I loved it. Partly I loved being back in a cinema, but it was the right film to be back in a cinema with. We'll just show you the trailer for In the Earth. I should say there are some disturbing images in this trailer, but it's a Ben Wheatley film. What are you going to do? You tell me his story. These are his memories. Can you feel him now? In the earth. No, I don't know what you mean. I think you do. So what are you working on? Searching ways of making crops more efficient. Funny place to study crops in a forest. We had to send a rescue party in to get a group out a couple of months ago. They got lost. Why didn't they use GPRS? There's no fun reception in there. People get a bit funny in the woods sometimes. You're worried she's going to get you? Yeah, who is it? It's a local folktale. She's the spirit of the woods. Wake up. Something's there. Listen, someone's watching us. I saw something in the woods. It wants to talk.
Everything seems to just keep us here. Okay, so, so tell us where the inspiration came from. What are the themes? I mean, you know, as a critic, I did the thing about writing the review and saying, well, I think this, 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 and this, but I actually never know where your inspirations come from. So what is behind In the Earth? Well, I mean... I'm going to move this closer. To oh, the sorry. Picture. No, just because I'm worried that nobody, your pearls of wisdom... <laughs> Drop out of my mouth like lead bricks. That's what everyone wants to hear. Um, yeah, I mean, I, it, it was a lot of different things I was thinking about. Some of it was... Um, about 1950s science fiction um, and my own relationship with horror as well. But the, the 50s stuff, I was kind of interested in like, the idea, and I really love the, like, the Harryhausen movies and the, and the kind of, um, where you get like a, a, the scientist and the scientist's girlfriend and, the, and the, the general who's probably the girlfriend's fa- father or something like that. Yeah. And I wanted to take, and they, they're always, those very tropey, those kind of ways that the, the basically the... Um, uh, the scientist is really handy and can do loads of stuff and then um, uh, right outside of his skill set. So I wanted to turn that all upside down and make the, the scientist really useless outside of the, of the lab and, um, and, and for characters to have very specific sets of skills which they are always good at rather than suddenly become, being able to you know, spring into life with these mad skills. Um, so that was one side of it. Another thing I was thinking about a lot was like the, the, the way that reality itself seemed to have been through the wisdom of our political leaders completely fucking erased, you know. And, um, uh, and how story, like it felt to me like the thing that makes us different from every creature is the, our, our ability for narrative. And that, that, but narrative in itself had, become ter- had been turned on us. You know, and, I, and I wanted to kind of look at that in, in relationship to folk, telling of folks' tales um, and, uh, you know, the perspectives of different characters as, as they kind of encounter these different narratives that are trying to explain something that is essentially inexplainable. See, I, I see a lot of John Wyndham in it. And when you say British science fiction, were you thinking Wyndham at all or is that just completely...? Yeah, Wyndham, but also um, Neil as well. Um, and I, weirdly, I hadn't seen a lot of the Neil stuff. I kind of, I, I, again... So it's, it's Nigel Neil. Yeah, and it's like through... I feel it's probably through osmosis, you know, a lot of it, but through Doctor Who, which he famously hated. But it's kind of... It, it, it's odd, and, I, and I, I've, I've been reading a, a, a biography um, in, into, the, into the Explained or something but, uh, about him, and, and there's, there's scripts that I've been writing that are very similar to the other, other Neil scripts as well. So, and Stone Tape, um, I think, is a, is a big influence on this, even though I don't think I'd actually seen it all the way through. Has everybody uh, here seen... How many of you have seen Stone Tape? How many of you are old enough to have seen Stone Tape? Wow, because that's... Yeah, not that, many. So not, not very many. If you, if you get... I imagine it must be available on video or, or DVD or... Yeah, I got it on Prime, I think. I just wrote, I wrote, um, bought it. I literally just did a history of streaming. It's on video, DVD, Blue, Prime, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Apparently it's available on the internet. Um, but if you, ha- if you haven't seen it, it is an extraordinary piece of work because it's kind of... It's like the thing about the past being encapsulated in a, in, a sta- in a stone. And it's terrifying, but there's almost nothing in it. 
Yeah, and it's it's also like a kind of he's he's looking at um, genre and haunting from a scientific point of view and trying to find an explanation, and the explanation is no less terrifying than just them being ghosts. Yeah, which I think is amazing. You know? So the trailer for In the Earth definitely says horror film, yeah. and is that how you describe it? Yeah, I mean, I, it was it, always trying to make the, you know to make them sit inside of genre. They never quite sit. As, as firmly as, as you want or, or that that trailer is very of its time you know we'll look back on that in 10 years time and go wow all the trailers look like that didn't they with that screaming noise and the, and the fast cutting and stuff so it's not it doesn't quite it, it's a bit more meditative than, than that would let you go on but I don't mind that you know sell it hard I say fuck it <laughs> there's, a, there's a great moment in it when they, they've walked into the woods they think they're lost they've had a kind of Blair Witchy tent thing happening and then they meet Reese Shearsmith and you think, this is going to go very bad. Yeah, I mean, I think that it, it's like, you can go, oh, well, it's Reese, so it's obviously, they're screwed. But, but at the same time, I, I, I felt that the film, it kind of works with its pragmatism. And it's like that, that, I always think about that idea of like, you know, if you're in a bath, you're never going to get into a boiling hot bath, but you'll get into a bath that slowly gets hotter yeah. and hotter until you boil. And I think, I think in that, the situation they were in, they'd have taken the help from anybody. Yeah. You know, and, 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 it, and they kind of know he's... It's not good news, but they just go along with it. You know. Which films have scared you? Um, threads. Okay. That's like, I think the Threads are, I find terrifying, and uh, Come and See as well is a big one for me. Yeah. But they're, they're kind of... This was, always, this was a debate we had around the time of Kill List, the difference between horror and horrible films, you know. And I think there's something particularly scary about come and see which I don't I don't get from ghouls and ghoulies and, and, yeah. and stuff like that you know. so come and see in case anyone hasn't seen it is well arguably the greatest war movie ever made war seen through the eyes of a child the story is that the director had to hypnotise the child star during certain scenes because he was terrified otherwise he'd be traumatised it sounds like it can't be true but I've read enough on set reports that they thought that was what was well, going the, on the thing that they did was use real ammunition that's the really scary stuff with, that Klimov decided he didn't like the looks of pyrotechnic explosions so and because he'd been in Belarus when the um, during the German occupation so he went right well we'll use real artillery um, and there's a scene where the where the um, the the main character is you're not hide- making this up this no is, no no it's true. true and then he's hiding from um tracer rounds and they just use real tracer rounds they don't they, you know i was watching it at the time going god that's really realistic and it just is real god. Um, so certainly with the beginning of the movie when there's a bombing in the woods and there's it's the 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 way that the trees move you can't do that with with movie pyrotechnics you actually have to have a bl- shock wave and stuff okay. if you had to pick a horror because neither of those things that you mentioned would traditionally st- sit in horror if you had to men- to name a horror film that actually scared you uh well at the time i guess the first thing that ever terrified me was carrie so um and i don't think i ever really recovered from that and i think and i don't think i saw the whole film i just walked in at the end and just caught the end, just and I, caught the yeah, hand. yeah, the hand thing, and it, and it scared the shit out of me, and and, like, and I and I feel that that my heart dropping from terror in that is uh, is, is still you know as, as present with me now as it was when I was whatever it was. It, I think I was probably about six or seven. I, yeah. I went to see Carrie at the the Harrow, the ABC Harrow on the Hill, and I went with a friend of mine called Richard Jeffries, and he had a big thing of popcorn that he didn't eat because the film was really, you know... So he sat through the whole film like this, watching the film, not eating any of the popcorn. And then the film finished, 
So it's fine. So, so, so he kind of relaxed. And then the hand came out of the thing, and this whole thing... It was, like, it was like a nuclear explosion of popcorn. It literally looked like he'd exploded, and everything had gone everywhere. It, it, and it, again, it was a great moment, because I love being in the cinema with other people who are scared. I mean, I love being scared in the cinema, but I love the feeling of being scared in a cinema with a, you know, with a group who are having that same experience. Yeah, um, yeah I saw the... Um Oh, what's the the von? Oh, Antichrist. Yeah, Antichrist. And um, I watched that in the, with a audience, and the bit where they bash his nuts in with a rock, or whatever, with a hammer, and the guy at the front just went, <laughs> <laughs> and that was worth that was worth admission. I remember, uh, yeah, a test screening we did with Kill This, which was um, with a uh, was a mate of mine actually who was in the audience, and he and he gasped, "Not the child." <laughs> <laughs> I was like. So look, not, every, not everyone would know this, but you started in comedy virals. That was how you got your, your sort of, your foot in, right? Yeah, well, online, online stuff. So I had a website um, and I found, I'd, I'd been making like short films, the, the, the traditional route at the time, which was making short films and trying to get f- finance off of uh, film bo- funding bodies and stuff and showing them in the cinema clubs like Exploding Cinema and um, yeah. My Eyes, My Eyes and Omsk and those kind of things, which are cool, you know, but it was still only like, you know, you'd show it to 40 people and think that was your birthday kind of thing. But, it, but then when the internet turned up, I started making much more stuff and, and then chasing that kind of nascent online audience. Um, and that, to me, I always thought of that as like a, uh, you know, the, the comics talk about going to do northern working men's clubs as the, to harden themselves up for their live, yeah, yeah. live stuff or doing online viral and doing clips for the internet before YouTube and all that stuff was my, my way of... Can I, can I show an early viral? It's funny because we were talking about this yesterday and we said, there's only a very low-res version of it. Have you got it? And you said, I've been trying to destroy every copy of it. <laughs> yes. Yeah, well, I mean, it's just a, just a, a cleaning up of, the, of my internet footprint. You okay. Know. All right. Do you want to see an early... But, and here's the thing. The chances are you may well have seen this because it's been seen by how many people? Oh, God, hundreds and hundreds of millions. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so you may well have seen this, but you may not have known that Ben did it. It's really short, like really short. So don't look away because it's really short. Here we go. Yeah. So that's that's Rob Hill, who's stars in Down Terrace. Yeah, yeah. And that's down. That's out the front door of the Down Terrace house. And that gag, you were still doing several years later. Because I'm going to show a clip from Sightseers, which has the same gag in it. Well, yes. Okay. <laughs> All right. That was an accident. I feel a bit emotional, because, you know, it's the first one we've done together, isn't it? Ah, uh, you're sacked. What? You're sacked. What? Look, <laughs> this isn't working. Look, I, d- I don't need you. I don't need a muse. I'm not a bloody writer, am I? 
No, you're not. You're a serial killer. I am That's not. what Look, you are. Tina, I need structure, organisation. This is just chaos. It's, 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 it's not my style. Just all this... Oh, I can't open the fucking door now. 
I'd seen a lot of the Mike Lee stuff I had, but I hadn't seen that. And then we're like, oh my God, it's really similar. So they, so there was uh, even down to, I mean, even the fucking production stills of me with Alice and Steve, with me with a little beanie hat on them, and then going like this, it looked like the Mike <laughs> Lee pictures from Nuts and May. So yeah, um, but I did a, I did an introduction for um, Happy New Year, Colin Burstead, a, a part of the London Film Festival, and Mike Lee was in the audience. And I, and I introduced it by saying, we ripped you off on, um, on Sightseers from Nuts in May, and now we're going to do um, Abigail's Party. <laughs> Cheers, Mike. <laughs> the things that influence you are, are really odd. One of your favourite films, and you and I have discussed this before, is John Borman's Zardoz. Has anyone seen Zardoz? Okay, does anyone like Zardoz? <laughs> so... Zardoz is a futuristic film set in 22, 20-something, and Sean Connery wears a red leather jockstrap, and, yeah, you remember it now, yeah? And there's a big floating head, and there's John Alderton in a pair of green velvet doubloons. And You're selling it to me hard here. I mean, it sounds good to me. What, what is it about that? Because I know you, you genuinely think it's a, a, a great piece of British well, science fiction. I, I enjoy it and, and I think it's gonzo science fiction in a way that it's not just you know, knights space knights, you know or, or you know, which science fiction seems to have become it's just like people, it's other genres dressed up as, uh, with science fiction trapping, but this is proper science fiction you know, and it should be, it should be kind of applauded rather than mocked Would you make a flat out science fiction movie? Yeah Yeah, and a cowboy film I think, but the, the the thing I've struggled with is musicals. But um, I'm writing one at the moment just to get over that. Are you are you actually doing that? Or are you just saying that to? No, I am. I've, 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 I'm working on it at the moment. It's like a, f- a folk musical. So like Wicker Man? No, it, it, no. It's about. It's basically about um, a society. It's a, it's a big, about an alternate um, royal family. So it's, they've, they've got kicked out of the timeline, but they're all skin. And they've got this c- community where they, um, uh, it, which is based around song. So every ceremony, they have to sing to each other. And Go it, on. And, 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 it, and it's this guy who um, he gets pulled into the society, and it's like a mock documentary about how uh, how he marries into it. And are you writing the songs? No, I'm, I'm talking to lots of different people to write songs for me for it. So. It, yeah, so it's, it'll be... But the, the actors will have to sing the songs as well. It sounds great. Who are you talking to to write the songs? Um, I've been talking to Sam Riley because he did a great song. He wrote the song at the end of Colin Burst. Yeah, as yeah, well. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and Clint Mansell and my own son, Will. He's, he's written a song, several songs for it. And my mate, Tom. And, and do, does it have a title? Uh, not at the moment. Oh, yeah, The Kening. The Kening. The Kening. Yeah, because I was talk, talking to Rhys Shearsmith about it, and I wrote, I, and it was called The King, and I misspelt it. And I'm like, oh, The Kening, that's quite good, I'll keep that. Okay, it's a terrible title, you really have to, you, you, can't, you can't call it The Kening. Why not? Fuck it, I'm paying for it. Okay, all right, fine. <laughs> All right, so on the subject of society's turn upside down, I want to play a clip from High Rise, which is your brilliant adaptation of a novel that was famously thought to be unfilmable. And Nick Rowe could try to do it. I think Borman may even at some point have had a look at it. Why was it that people said that High High Rise was unfilmable for such a long time? 
I've no idea. When I when when, when I read the book, it, it seemed like it was quite a clear narrative. I think it's probably probably because it's so bleak. Because the actual story inside it is pretty straightforward. For anyone who hasn't seen it, what is the setup of High Rise? Um, uh, twenty twenty. <laughs> <laughs> Effectively. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a posh tower block in 1975, um, which everybody turns on them at each other. So the tower block is a kind of, it's like a, 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 a microcosm of society. The very rich live at the top, the less yeah. rich live down below. Yeah, but it's not straight kind of class war. It's not like there's the poor at the bottom. It's just like people who do documentaries live at the bottom. Okay. So it's like middle, it's m- lower middle, upper middle, and then higher. Okay, so the scene we're going to play has got a version of ABBA's SOS performed by Portishead. How did this come about? Um, well, I'd, I'd become when Twitter wasn't such a hellscape. I'd, I'd become friends with uh, Jeff Barrow by chatting. You know, it was, it was a moment. There was a moment for about a year when you could like talk to people directly, and I thought, how would I ever talk to Portishead? You know, usually you'd have to send someone into Bristol to kind of ferret them out somehow, or, but it was, it was never going to happen. But, but, but then, just that say, my wife's from Bristol. Tread very carefully about <laughs> sending someone into Bristol, <laughs> or even into Portishead itself. You know, <laughs> but it, it, it was, um, yeah. And so I got chatting with Jeff, and and it kind of went from there. And then I wrote a, 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 a begging letter to um, to Benny and Bjorn. Um, asking permission to use the track. What did you say in the begging letter? Did you did you do the? I've always been a huge ABBA fan. I remember dancing the Dancing Queen. I remember losing my heart to you know. I did all that, and then I finished it with um, and thank you for the music. <laughs> and uh, you tart. I know. I, I, but you know what? I wrote it, and then I didn't realise it was a reference. Then I went, oh my god, it is, because I'm that much of a fan. <laughs> so I, you know, but it was true. I'm a fan. I'm you know, I'm a fan of ABBA. I, I am. Love so it, it's kind of, um, I didn't have to, I wasn't trying to twist his arm. It was all true. It was easy, an easy letter to write. What's you know? your favourite ABBA song? Um, Super Trooper. I was sick and tired of everything when I called you last night from Glasgow. <laughs> it's a weird opening line, isn't it? Yeah, and I always thought it was about, like, science fiction soldiers until I found it was just a light. Yeah. That's right, that is literally, is it? It's a song about a light that features Glasgow in the first line. It doesn't have hit written all over it, does it? Okay, so this is, this is a scene from High Rise which plays out over this version of SOS. Can you explain sort of what, we, what, what are we in the aftermath of during this? Um, well, the tower block's been uh, broken down and there's been a really grim rape. So that's it, really. Sorry, okay. sorry, everyone, for the context of that. Right, here we go. I really tried to make it out. I wish I understood what happened to our love. It used to be so good. So when you're near me, darling, can't you hear?
How was Tom Hiddleston? He was wicked, yeah. I mean, it, it, it told me it was... I realised that it was working with a, a really a precision-made kind of acting tool. You know, there was, he was, you know, could do anything and would, was totally kind of committed to it. And, and, I, and on that show, I, I started to learn that the, there's a, a worry with actors where if you get people who totally invest in the role you have to be careful with them because they go so far into it that they can hurt themselves, you know, in, in terms of their, their kind of, their, how they are mentally. So it was, that was really interesting. And I, before I just thought, oh, people just put, it's like putting on a, a suit of clothes and they go and do it. But really it's like they, when they, the, the amount that he gave into this role, it, I, I could see it was affecting him over time. Are you an actor's director? Um, I don't know. I, I wouldn't, I don't know what exactly that means. I mean, it, I understand, like, if, you, if you've come up through theatre and you talk a lot with actors and you have a lot of rehearsal time, and I don't really do that. But I certainly, I love actors and I love to see, I want to see what they've got, you know. And I don't believe in the, the telling school of directing where you act stuff out or you, you ask for things too specifically. I want to, you know, I think a lot of my role is in casting and I want to see the things that I saw in them and why I cast them. I don't want to get in the way of that, you know. You, there are key people that you've worked with, you know, on many occasions. I mean, Rhys Shearsmith, obviously. Do you do you develop relationships with actors that kind of grow over the course of the of, of the films? I think it, I think it's once you've done a film with someone and they they see the film, they like it, then they trust you more, or they can they they'll go further each time. So uh, that's that's the relationship that's that's built. I think. Okay, so no name, no pack drill. Have you? Have you ever had a bad experience with an actor? Um, not really. I mean, I, I, maybe there's stuff where they've questioned things I haven't had answers for on the spot, and that's, that's harder. But, um, yeah, I'm not, I don't think I would say, to be honest. <laughs> if it had been really bad, I'd, I'd cover it up. Okay. No, the, the, the reason I ask is I've spoken to nine or ten people that have worked with you as actors... They all say you're horrible. They all say you're really, really sort of nice and friendly, but particularly since the subject matter of many of the films is really dark. And it is, it's tempting to imagine that if you're making a dark film, the atmosphere on set is dark, but apparently not the case at all. It can be, it, it can be dark, but I mean, I think that the... I think the job, my job usually is to try and foster a kind of an atmosphere where that there's no... It sounds bad, but there's no judgment. But it's more that it's it's that that there can be no failure. So I often ask people okay. to go to the top of the performance and the bottom of the performance, the smallest version, the biggest version. And by that point in the process, we usually, you know, that everybody trusts each other enough that the in the edit will the right decision will be made. But it's interesting to see how high it can go and how low it can go. Okay. So you're about to make a film with one of my favourite actors. You're about to make the Meg Two. With the Stath. I am, yes. Come on. <laughs> How the hell did that come about? I, I don't question these things too closely, you know, but it just, the script turned up, and I didn't even, you know, I looked and went, why the fuck would I turn this down? This is brilliant, you know. Um, and then I read it, and I was still happy to do it, you know. But it... it, it I have chosen stuff in the past on on a sliding scale of, of kind of how kind of diametrically opposed it is to the last thing I've done. And I think that 
it felt it felt right by that criteria. And have you have you met the Staith? I have. Yeah, I had a nice lunch with him. What's he like? He's he's lovely. Yeah, it was great. Yeah, we didn't we didn't get any we didn't fight any people. <laughs> no one got thrown through a window. Nothing happened like that. Um, we just chatted and you know had some chicken and chips. If I remember. And how do you rate him as an actor? Because I mean, the, the interesting thing with him is because he started out. He was a, a, a diver, right? He was a, not a deep-sea diver. He was a yeah. diver, so he was an athlete. Yeah. And then he had sort of small roles in movies in which it was to do with his physical presence. He was in a couple of dance videos early on. But how do you rate him as an actor? Well, I think he's a, there's something about him and, and something that, the, that all the, the great kind of um, action actors and film stars have, which is, like, is a relatability, and it's, he doesn't get in the way of himself as he performs. And I think that's the thing. And it's like people... It's the same thing you get, you get with Connery and you get with Kane as well, I think. You know, he's our, basically our version, our, this generation's version of that. And he, and he moves through genre movies in, in, in the same way that those two did back in the day. So they can be in science fiction things and action movies and spy movies, and, it's all, you know, and it all works. And I think it's generally down to, you know, that you... Um, you enjoy him and you want, you want him he's not like totally indestructible like some of these guys are but you there's a, there's a kind of down to earthness about him that you like you know and root for what's your favourite Statham movie? I think it's Crank <laughs> ok that's the wrong choice but ok <laughs> alright Crank 2 then Crank is the one in which <laughs> Crank is the one in which there's a point in which he restarts himself with a car battery Again, that sounds great to me. Yeah, um, yeah, I love Crank. What's not to love about Crank? I mean, it's total filth and it's horrible, but it's, it's yeah, a great it's, movie. But, you know. it, yeah, it, I mean, I, I've seen everything the Staith has made, I believe, and the, the very the, the height of the Staiths. Uh, have you seen Hummingbird? I still haven't seen Hummingbird. Hummingbird is great. Hummingbird is the film in which he, you know, he stretches his acting muscles as far as possible. The big problem with Hummingbird in it is there, there is no sequence in it in which he strips to the waist and wrestles somebody in oil, which is something I always look forward to in a Statham movie. Yeah, I mean, that, that's, um, that's one of my favourite sequences in Transporter, yeah. definitely. That and, and taking the air from a, a dead Russian. <laughs> As, as you're being strafed with bullets in the sea. Yeah. I, had to, I had to do a piece for the... I was writing a piece for The Observer about male wrestling in movies, and I Googled, because I was trying to remember which film it was that that came in, and I Googled male oil wrestling, and I had to clear my search history because for ages after that, my computer was... So, it was a terrible thing. So, look, is it... Is it going to be... Is it, I want it to be great. I want it to be brilliant. I love the idea of Jason Statham, Shark. But what's the, can you tell us what the setup of it is? What's the basic... I know it's, the, you the haven't The basic plot of the Meg 2? Yes. <laughs> well... There's a shark, there's right? A, there's a load of Megs, and there's a load of danger and action and running about, and he has to deal with that. And it's uh, set a few years after the... First, it's not a prequel. Okay. It's a, a solidly a sequel, yeah. Okay. So it's everything you want, you know, from there's big fish and there's explosions and um, I think he gets to say Megalodon a few times. That's my, that, my favourite... I'll, I'll do you my Statham impression because it's really uncanny. OK? My God, it's the Megalodon. It's like he's in the room. It's... Yeah, if we need any... Yeah, thank you. Yeah. yeah. I'm not crazy. (laughs) 
So what else have you got? Because you, you like this thing about having different projects. So you've just done In the Earth, which is a fairly small project, even though it's a great big widescreen experience. And I cannot recommend it enough. If you haven't had a chance to go and see it in cinema, it's the full... 360 cinema experience. So what else have you got? So you've got the musical about the royal family. Yes. You've got Jason Statham, Shark Puncher 2. Yes. I'm working on a documentary about Palace Pictures. Oh, yeah. Tell us about that. So for those who don't know, who are Palace Pictures? Palace Pictures were um, Steve Woolley and Nick Powell, and they set up a company in the 80s which basically did um, Mona Lisa, Absolute Beginners... Um, Company of Wolves and, and their last film was The Crying Game but they also ran this um, Scala cinema as well yeah. um, and their kind of story is of riding on the crest of, of technology basically but, and, and as VHS comes out they, they distribute Evil Dead um, at a point where nobody really believed in VHS so they, they kind of came into the industry without um, shoot the whole industry up basically and, and basically imprinted on it what we have today so without them there's no Miramax and there's no A24 and there's no Neon and all these kinds of companies I mean the remarkable thing about Palace was that they released Evil Dead simultaneously in cinemas and on videotape and apparently didn't tell the, the, the cinemas that it was also play, it was also available on tape because nobody thought tape was important and then of course it, uh, Evil Dead became one of the mainstays of the Video Nasties campaign it was one of the ones that was you know chased through court on charges of obscenity and for ages and ages wasn't available uncut and I think it is genuinely a masterpiece and of course Sam Raimi who made it went on to make the Spider-Man films which are the hugest biggest blockbusters so what will we get from the Scala documentary it's the story of Scala or it's I think I think I sold it into them as it's like casino only about selling videotapes <laughs> is that the tagline of the film yeah, basically, yeah. It's, it's lots of lots of tracks into people going. We've sold we've sold twenty thousand units. <laughs> Stuff did, like that. Did you used to go to the Scala Cinema? Yeah, because oh, I was I went to school down the road from it, so I went as a school kid. To so Scala. what did you see at Scala? So the Scala is a cinema in Kings. Well, it moved, but Kings Cross. It's not there anymore. Which would do all nighters. It would do. Films like Thundercrack and, you know, movies that weren't certificated elsewhere and occult stuff, retro stuff. What, did you, what do you remember seeing at the Scala? Um, well, I went to quite a few of the all-nighters. So, you know, the, the kind of Terminator, Terminate, um, Aliens, The Thing, that kind of stuff. I, my favourite experience of the Scala was like being, being an all-nighter next to this guy who was really, really drunk. And he would kept talking, and people go, "Oh, sharp, sharp!" And he went, and it was the thing. He goes, "Oh, I, I, I won't sharp. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you the ending of the film." <laughs> and the whole cinema was like, "No, no!" He goes, "Oh, it's the black bloke and the bloke with the beard. Everyone else dies." <laughs> <laughs> and, and they, uh, yeah, so that was that was a great memory. <laughs> the Scala had a cat because the Scala had a mouse and rat problem. So the Scala had a cat, and if you were ever at any of the Scala all-nighters, the cat would just walk around the and would jump into your lap, and usually like, you'd be in the middle of watching something really weird and really freaky, and suddenly the Scala cat would jump. And the other thing with the Scala was the projection, whoever the projectionist in the Scala was at that particular time, wasn't really bothered by the order of the reels, as long as the whole of the film went through the projector yeah. at some point. The tyranny of narrative. It, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Although I remember uh, there's a film with Colin Firth called Trauma by Mark Evans, and I saw it with James King, who was the, the young Radio 1 film critic, 
And I saw it, and I thought it was really interesting. And we came out afterwards, and James said, it didn't make any sense. The film didn't make any sense. I went, oh, for heaven's sake, child. It's non-linear, it's non-linear narrative. I mean, get with, the, get with the program. And then when we were on the way back, the distributors rang me up and said, we're sorry, we mixed all the reels up. We were shown in the wrong order. They said, would you come back and see it in the right order? I said, OK, it wasn't as good. It was much better in the wrong order. I saw... Um uh, the Friends of Bruce Lee screenings as well at the Scala, and that was amazing. Where they'd start with a demonstration of the one-inch punch from uh, to a member of the audience, <laughs> so someone got them like, boom, like that, and they'd fly across the stage. Fantastic. Yeah. What's your favourite movie of all time? Favourite movie of all time yeah. at this split second. Yeah, uh, Taxi Driver. Because because I think it was the movie that opened my eyes to what cinema was. I think I was, I was in a dream before that, and then, I, and then everything was pre-Taxi Driver, and then everything was post-Taxi Driver. And were you too young to see it when you saw it? Mm, yeah, probably. Not, not by much, though. I think we rented... We, we, it was a weird thing. We, we didn't rent it because we thought it was... I think we talked about this before, because we thought it was a film about... I, th- I thought it was a TV adaptation, like on the buses. Of, of Taxi. Of Taxi, of yeah. Taxi. Yeah, yeah. So I kind of, I'd avoided it for ages, uh, you know. I just ask, what, what are the chances that Robert De Niro would be in the big screen adaptation of the TV show Taxi? Enough to put me off. <laughs> um, and, then, and then it was like, oh, who wants to watch a thing about a taxi driver as well? That was part of the... Uh, and eventually, we rent, me and my mate Dom rented it and... Just sat there, just, you know. It was like, was it the, the, the adverts for Maxell tapes where your hair gets blown backwards? Yeah, yeah, it was yeah. that, basically. You just went, fuck! And what's the worst film you've ever seen? Oh. Zardoz. No, I don't know. I mean, the, I, I, I don't know if I get into the game of saying what's worst. Oh, come on! I don't know. Because, you know, I always get I always get uncomfortable with that stuff. It's like the stuff about the room and stuff. You know, it's like no, oh, no, these no. films are shit. Oh, ha, ha, ha. you know, it's like oh. it's like they still. He was making, trying to make a movie. It did, didn't turn out great, but it wasn't. You know, that's very generous and kind of you. However, yeah, don't no, don't encourage him. <laughs> No, no one tries to make a shit film, do they? That's, that's I'm the thing. not entirely sure that's true. <laughs> I think Uwe Boll has actually set out to make bad movies sometimes. I think Michael Bay set out to make bad movies sometimes. What's his worst movie, then, in your opinion? The worst movie ever made? No, by, no, no, by, um, by uh, Bay. Michael Bay's worst movie? Yeah. Transformers 3. Because it was, it was like the point at which I actually felt that my head had died watching it. <laughs> and I remember Pete Bradshaw once reviewed a film and he said, it was like my head had been baked in a loaf of bread. And, and, the, and the, thing about, the thing about it was, it was so loud that I fell asleep. Because it was just like literally Michael Bay going, boom, 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 boom. And after a while, you just... Thought it was absolutely horrible. Yeah, Everything about it, I hated. It's a shutdown, isn't it, to protect yourself? Yeah. You pass out. Like, <gasps> you know the, J- the Jason Isaacs Michael Bay story. How many of you have seen Armageddon? Okay, so Jason Isaacs, who was a very, he's a friend of the festival, it would usually be here, um, has a small role in Armageddon. And in Armageddon, the plot is there is a big meteorite that's coming to destroy the Earth. And they can't knock it off course, so the only thing they can do is to blow it up. But the only way they can blow it up is they have to 
get people out there and drill into it and then blow it up from the inside so that it doesn't destroy the earth. But in order to get people to drill into it, it's a meteorite made of super strong rock. Mm. They have to get the best drillers in the world who are currently like down in the middle of the ocean somewhere doing drilling, lots of drilling that they're doing, drilling. And now they've got to get the drillers on the asteroid so they can drill into the asteroid and blow it up. So in order to do that, they have to teach them to be astronauts. So they have to get the, the people who, who are drillers, they have to teach them to be astronauts. And somebody, and I think it was Jason, halfway through the production said, wouldn't it be easier to teach astronauts to drill? <laughs> I like that the, the reward for saving the Earth is not paying tax again. <laughs> All right, well, look, Ben, we've, uh, we've run out of time. Um, it's been lovely speaking to you. In the Earth is in cinemas now. Please do go and see it. I really look forward to the Royal Family documentary, which sounds completely crazy go nuts. <laughs> the Kening, remember the name. The Kening, yes. It's a name you, you won't be seeing that <laughs> on the marquee able, anytime and soon. And you won't be able to search it on the internet just in case that was a thing you wanted to do. Okay. Because no one can spell it. Good. And, uh, and the Scala documentary, you are making it now? Yeah, that's... That will probably come after... It will be finished after um, Meg. Okay. So it will take a bit of time. Okay. And the Meg 2 will be finished... 2023? Something like that? I don't know. I've got a... Yeah, it shoots in January, and then it's a year of training. And you've already been on it for a year? Yeah. I've been storyboarding away. So how much... How many years of your life will it have taken up when it's done? Three or four, probably. Wow. Yeah. It's... uh, that's a lot of shark drawings. Yeah. <laughs> and if, if when you've done it, you feel some of the lines don't work and you need someone to dub the stafe. My God, it's a megalodon. Jason? <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Ben Wheatley. Thank you. Well, there we are. That was me and Ben Wheatley on stage at the Latitude Festival. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you have, remember to tell your friends, subscribe and visit our Patreon page where there's loads of extras, including videos. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. Keep watching the skies. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.